You know, Reed, typically we start our podcast out with something funny, gives people a little bit of laugh. But I think today, given what's going on down in your state of Texas uh, and the hurricane, I thought we might want to take a moment to to, uh, you know, maybe ask people for a little help. Yeah, absolutely. So I've heard from a lot of people online. I live in central Texas, right outside of Austin. Uh, we were on kind of the outskirts of all of this. And so other than a little rain and wind, you know, nothing like what people are seeing on the news, but I uh, appreciate the, uh, the kind notes. For those that do not live in Texas and don't have somebody affected or aren't already, you know, figuring out ways to help and things like that, but are curious on maybe how they could help, I would recommend uh, the Red Cross. That's always a great place to start. So redcross.org, you'll see right there on their homepage, there's a place where you can simply click a button, donate a little bit of money. Uh, and then obviously there's always... Um, blood drives and different things like that. Find your way over to redcross.org and uh, it's a great way to get involved. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. I am Chris Boyer, and once again, I am joined by my host, Reed Smith. Reed is a digital marketing strategist and social media expert. He helps hospitals across the country on a variety of different digital solutions, including websites, social media strategies, content, etc. You can find him online. He's on all of the social channels out there, LinkedIn, on Twitter. He's at, at Reed Smith. He's also on Snapchat and some of those other places as well. And his website is socialhealthinstitute.com. Reed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Chris, on the other microphone that you just heard from, you can find at ChristopherBoyer.com, at Chris Boyer on Twitter and a lot of the other social channels, tracking down on LinkedIn where he's really active. Yeah, and so he spends a lot of his time, uh, much like I, in uh, talking with hospitals, healthcare companies around the country about how to do said efforts better in the digital marketing space. So. Uh, track us down. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what episodes you're listening to, what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like for us to talk about in the future. So, This episode of Touchpoint is brought to you by one of our sponsors, Transparently. Transparently is the nation's fastest growing platform for gathering and publishing physician star ratings and reviews. You can visit Transparently.com to learn why the country's most innovative health systems are choosing them to power a better digital patient experience. Again, to learn more, visit them online at Transparently.com. Welcome to episode 30. Yes, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Talking about online communities. And so we'll, uh, we'll get to hear from our old friend Ed Bennett a little while later. Uh, but we want to first talk a little bit about what are online communities, uh, the different types, what people talk about, why, why these have come about, um, you know, some of the, uh, I guess, hurdles that hospitals specifically kind of run into when, when going down this path. But real quick as we get started, a quick definition of an online community, which I pulled from the internet. And so this is an older definition, actually came from like the early 70s, but it is a group of people who interact on a regular basis with each other online, especially to share information and opinions on those interests that they have in common. So uh, again, lots of people with a common interest 
find themselves attracted to other people with similar interests and they interact online. You know, Reed, this whole concept of people getting together and talking to one another online is something that's not really new. In fact, I remember way back in the early days of the internet, I was on Usenet groups and and BBSs and talking to people around different particular topics. And it would be a natural thing, even before there was like sort of the web as we know it today. And the internet kind of helped to unite that across the world. But I would say that, you know, with the advent of social media, it really has become tools unto themselves. And a lot of the tools that we use now uh, were specifically developed for this very purpose. You know, now they they function a little differently or uh, maybe have taken a different turn uh, at some point down their uh, development path. But um, this is, you know, one of the big wins of the Internet is being able to connect with people that don't live in proximity to you physically. You know, I used to say way back when, when people, when hospitals were starting to consider Facebook as part of their strategies, I would say... As hospitals, we are the conveners of the topic of healthcare online, at least for our communities. We're serving our local communities and sharing that information. So naturally, we want to build a community of interest. And things like Facebook and even Twitter are great ways that you can develop these communities of, of interest, of information. What we're going to do today is kind of del- delve a little bit deep into that. But before we do, I think it might be cool for us to talk about the four types of online communities that are out there, just in general, the four types. Yeah. So that might help us give us some context when we're talking about online patient communities. So the first one is uh, what they're calling social communities. So these include uh, most of your common uh, publicly accessible social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, things like that. Brands typically are using these or we're seeing brands typically use these, at least at the first point, uh, as some sort of uh, for marketing, uh, external communications, uh, broadcasting information. Um, So it's really more about brand awareness, you know, reaching a larger audience, you know, things that they, you know, would probably slot under marketing and advertising. Uh, probably even more so than communications. So those are more like open, public, and and are, are these online communities. The second type is a little bit no, more nuanced than that. It's a support community that allows uh, members to offer tips around particular products or services that are offered. So helping to defray maybe customer support costs, maybe share information about their experiences. You know, this is compared to the, the first category this really looks at a structured way of getting ideas from a community um, and taking those ideas back to help either improve the product or improve the service that's coming from that. Uh, there was a study that Forrester Research did that says 81% of companies have a support community of some kind. So this is just a new way of customer support in, in a lot of cases uh, it, from a brand perspective and then uh, support in the sense that other you know, individuals helping other individuals in a lot of cases. The third one, uh, advocate communities. Um, And so this is probably not typically where most people, at least from a brand standpoint, have started. But it's a great way to, it's it's kind of that next iteration past just telling people about yourself. But you find those folks that are most passionate about your brand. Maybe they're your most loyal customers. And that's a lot of the times how brands, you know, get people into these communities is have that loyalty or kind of membership Uh, card, uh, if you will, or program that you sign up for. But this is a way that it allows for brands to mobilize those folks. So, you know, you're giving them insider information, you know, for lack of a better word, 
uh, and really trying to equip them to then go out and talk about your brand that they're so passionate about, which we've talked a lot of times that you probably take the recommendation of your friend much more seriously or you know it carries more weight than just seeing an advertisement from the same brand for the same product. So this is a way for, for folks to do that. The fourth type of community is what they call an insight community, which looks at really getting a, a key focus of stakeholders, people that are carefully selected, for example, of customers or people that are maybe advocates for the brand. And these communities allow companies to gather continuous high quality feedback from these stakeholders Again, bringing that back, maybe used as part of a market research tool. In some cases, this could be used as sort of like an influencer group for influencer marketing purposes. You could be using these kinds of uh, stakeholder groups. Now, while these are, you know, these communities are really useful for organizations that have a good long, uh, long-standing relationship with people that are in their communities and are loyal to their brand. Now, Reed, these are all business-related online communities, but there's one that isn't really described in these four categories, and that is those people that actually maybe build their own communities without any kind of business oversight. You know, we're seeing that more and more, and some of the tools even allow for that, like like Facebook, for example. Anybody can go set up a group, so you don't have to be a brand to do that. And where we see this happening a lot, the sort of this organic build of, of groups, even though, you know, as we as healthcare systems, we want to convene that, that conversation. Oftentimes, on the internet, patients are getting together and collaborating about their care. And they, this starts sometimes very organically. People across the world get together and start talking about a particular disease or treatment or condition. Why is that? It's because people, health is part of their lives. People, Health is an important part of their lives. And now that we have all of these social communities and social tools at our disposal, Facebook, Twitter, blogs, whatever, it's very natural for us to start to talk about different aspects of our lives online. Yeah, sure, we're going to talk about our, our kids and, and, and share photographs of our children. And we're going to share stories from our, from our lives. But very naturally, we're also, if we're struggling with conditions or we're trying to be healthy, we're trying to stay fit, whatever it may be, we're going to start getting together and talking to other people in that regard. I think this probably also um, is another reason why hospitals spend a lot of time, effort, energy, money, uh, creating patient testimonials. You know, people want to hear from other people that have been in the same place that they're in. So while this isn't patient testimonials, this is whether it's hospital driven or patient driven, people want to connect with other people like them, especially as the level of acuity goes up. If you're expecting a child and everything's normal, you know, you can probably find a fair amount of people in your life that you go to church with or that just friends that you know or whatever that you're, you know, you're trading tips over the phone or via email or in person or whatever. Take that same scenario. You have twins or multiples, probably less people that you know. Now you're joining, you know, different groups online and support groups and this, that, and the other, or first time moms or whatever it is. And as that kind of specialty or acuity goes up, 
you know, you're, you're going to start looking for not just physicians, uh, but also patient communities. With that in mind, why don't we try to create our own list of different types of online patient communities that there might be out there? We can be very general with those. Like, mm-hmm. for example, we talked about patients getting together just organically and just talking to each other and sharing information with one another without any kind of oversight. They just find each other online and they start talking to one another. That's that's what I, I guess I would call a sort of like an organically built patient-driven community. Yeah, and you know, the other side of that coin is something that's owned by a brand. You know, whether that be a hospital, pharmaceutical company, medical device company, some sort of advocacy group like uh, Komen or the Heart Association or you know whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting, topically, they they align quite quite often. So just take for example the um, well Komen for example. So breast cancer. You know, you're going to find groups online for people that have, you know, are breast cancer survivors, for example, um, and they want to share information with those currently going through, you know, that diagnosis or that that stage in their life. Komen probably has some very very similar scenarios on their website, on Facebook, you know, wherever. You see the same thing with weight loss. You see the same thing with. Uh, you know, people that have had uh, babies in the NICU. So there's a lot of those that can be owned by the hospital uh, or might be owned or started or developed by, by patients and you just kind of happen across them. You know, those those that are owned by a brand, and when you say owned or maybe even, you know, managed by a brand, there's different levels of type of ownership and management as well. Mm-hmm. You could be very much uh, just, you know, you, you sponsor this community and let people talk to one another and just, you know, have maybe light community rules. You don't want to have any cursing or any spam or anything like that, but you let people talk to one another. Right. I, I, you know, a, a good example of that is like patients like me is one that's that was designed initially like that. Others could maybe allow for that communication to occur, but then, you know, maybe they're monitoring that to see what people are talking about a particular brand or particular type of medication, that sort of thing. So like a Doximity or a Sermo could be in that kind of category, right? So that's Mm -hmm. more of their, they're managing that as for like clinical information. Uh, A lot of pharma and medical devices do that too. The reason for all of these is because it's a great way to communicate and it allows participation. So in this case, when we're talking about individuals and we're talking about you know health, you know that it can have a positive impact on, on outcomes. There's a lot of great things that can come out of this when we're talking about online patient communities. A lot of different outcomes, a lot of different impacts to to how people actually you know engage with our, their care. So one of the first things, Reed, that you know an online patient community can do is it can help with the overall education and experience kind of sharing information about that particular tip. So let's say, for example, a hospital or health system sponsors an online community and uh, they want to talk about a particular topic. You, we mentioned breast cancer. We'll just carry that forward here. An online patient community could be a really good place where maybe nurse navigators or even oncologists that specialize in breast cancer can start to share information about latest studies, research, or they can actually share what the experience would be like as patients go through that the care treatment at their particular cancer institute. Also, resources or information for caregivers. So uh, it's a great way to disseminate best practices, show examples of kind of what's gone on, what happens, and, and also, you know, obtain feedback on all of that. It's also a great place 
as we talk about, right, where, where patients can talk to one another, where if you, in a moderated sort of sense, you could have survivors of breast cancer, for example, talking to one another and sharing ideas and experience and all of these things too. That peer support is very, very critical for these online patient communities. So with that said, let me, let me pause here for a second. In a perfect world, let me think how I want to say this. Because I don't, I don't mean this in a negative. Uh, there's nothing negative about this. But should there be communities that don't have caregivers or clinical providers participating in the conversation? You mean? Yeah. Well, I think that there are some that that do exist that are out there. Reed. I mean, there's there's obviously those that exist, and there's no way to. It's not like uh, if you're the authority, you know, everybody agrees you're the authority on said topic. Um, there's no way. I mean, you're, you're going to you know, keep up with all the groups that are out there. And, you know, no matter what research comes out, people are still going to say, you know, this isn't the case. I mean, we've seen that with, uh, you know, vaccines, for example, not to open that can of worms. But you run the risk, I guess, of, of not having providers in there. Then then you, you don't have anybody to validate what's being said or shared, right? If caregivers are not in there, you also have more of what a lot of people may feel is a safe place. You know, people aren't watching them. And I think that that becomes really important when you structure your online community to be very transparent about that level of interaction. We want to take it up to a certain point, but I think that there is also that fear of we can't diagnose and treat care over over these online communities. At a certain point, yep. if an individual is having a problem, you can't diagnose them, you can't pre- prescribe them medication through just merely one of these open online communities or even a closed online community. It also allows for communication with, you know, health providers. So that flip side, you know, if you've got, especially if a brand hospital, you know, whatever it may be, is running one of these groups, it's a great place to have an interaction. Uh, No, we can't, you know, diagnose through these communities, but it is a good place that you could have dedicated times, for example, or chats where people could engage with uh, somebody. Because some people ask some very simple questions, and a lot of these you'll see from a patient perspective are natural extensions of what is uh, historically or maybe even still is an in-person support group, weight loss, stroke. And so if you look at some of those, uh, especially those folks that are, you know, maybe it's a weight loss support group or bariatric surgery, I should say, maybe not just weight loss. Uh, I don't want to misconstrue that. Uh, a lot of folks have gone through and had the surgery, and this is a great place for them to say, here's what's working for me. You know, a lot of those are dietary questions and examples. When you start talking about improving outcomes, well, you know, what if they were able to connect with a lot of people and people were saying, hey, I've had really good luck with this, not great luck with that, even from just a dietary perspective. So, you know, you're reducing the risk maybe of uh, readmissions or issues, you know, after the fact. You know, and it's it's not to underestimate the fact that people in those social communities, patients themselves, actually can bring a lot of valuable information to the care and the support of that condition or that treatment or whatever it might be. Yeah, and so just staying on that same theme of, of bariatric surgery, there's a lot of cases where the clinical folks involved have never had that surgery, but everybody else there has. And so they can give a certain level of support that the clinical folks can't. 
hey, stick with it. I know it doesn't seem like much as this is now or that's not happening or this is happening. This is how long it took me. This is what I realized, you know. So they're able to provide a lot of that support to keep people uh, motivated and on that track to success, you know, regardless of what the topic is, that sometimes the clinical folks can't provide because they, they didn't have that experience. Right, right. And I think that that in and of itself plays to the real strengths and values of an online community. Mm-hmm. But it also underscores sort of the complexity sometimes of these online communities. It's not just straightforward. At a certain point, we do want communities and patients to share information with one another. But also, we, we need to make sure that the information that's being shared is clinically verified or, you know, the, the caregiver has to intercede at a certain point in time. Because ultimately, I think the goal here and one of the, the strengths of an online community is that it can actually improve the outcomes. If done right, online communities are really critical part of the care delivery and can help reduce, you know, the, the the time of recovery, can can ultimately improve outcomes. Some of the other things, other positive aspects of what um, online communities can provide is remember that these are built on social networks and social networks mm-hmm. are part of what we all have in our daily lives. So it really closely aligns with our online, you know, internet use, our daily internet use. If you can leverage things like maybe a Facebook group or a, a, a blog community that is easy to access from your mobile phone and people can check in and, and, and as they're going on their commute to work or whatever it might be, I think it really aligns closely with that, much more so than just attending a maybe a weekly or a bi-weekly meeting, support sure. meeting at the hospital. It's right there in our own pockets. Yeah, absolutely. And again, from that support, uh, especially from a behavioral standpoint, the ability for people to ask a quick question and not have to wait till next month's meeting is great. And we probably started that and a lot of people probably still do use group text threads or um, group emails and things like that. And so there's different ways. You know, I don't want to, even in my own mind, I continue to revert back to a closed Facebook group when I start talking about this topic. But there's lots of ways, uh, lots of ways that you can facilitate and develop these. Um, And so there are tons of different message boards out there. Some of those are on those advocacy sites and owned by those organizations. Uh, Some of it is software that you own and put on your own website to create groups and message boards and things like that behind a login, for example. Some of it is using third-party platforms to do this. And so I think you have to evaluate all of those things. I typically go back, and probably one of the reasons I think about Facebook so much is because your best bet for adoption in a lot of cases is to go where people already are. And the thing, too, to also remember, Reed, is that online support groups are very important, but they're also a complement to the overall care. Having that peer-to-peer, face-to-face support group is important. And then extending that conversation or that relationship online so you could communicate with them in between. For example, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I do talk to other diabetics online about particular things, how drugs work, how conditions work, etc. The one thing that I do is I use that relationship, and then sometimes when I meet them in person, face-to-face, it becomes that much more meaningful, uh, and it allows us to have that relationship. The internet is is very convenient, but it's also a complement to everyday life. That kind of leads us into 
you know, why is this hard specifically for hospitals? That's one of the the primary pieces there. You know, I I see a lot of times these are done from a marketing standpoint. So marketing sets it up, marketing owns it. And so they don't have a lot of clinical buy-in up front. And and the clinical folks a lot of times don't know that these groups exist in, in some cases, or they're not quite as bought into spending their time or resources in these communities. Well, I mean, it's not just that marketing owns it. I mean, owning it itself is really, really tough to do. Right. Think of the time, the resources, the amount of moderation that's involved. I mean, what we're talking about, it's a commitment, right? This isn't just something you just turn on and walk away from. In order to do a good online patient community, you have to be participating in that. Right. And so we've mentioned this uh, numerous times, even on other podcasts, even just about platforms like Facebook, for example. If we don't own them, then you don't really get to dictate, well, what then happens with that platform tomorrow? You set this entire initiative up around the utilization of a particular third party platform you don't own. You do the best you can, and there's some best practices there. Ed's a great resource for that. But again, you don't know what they're going to do from a privacy standpoint. You don't know what they're going to do from a functionality standpoint going forward and how that may or may not uh, impact how the group participates or interacts with each other. But if you set up something on its own, let's say you create your own community, then you have to go through all this effort to actually attract people to it, to bring people to it and participate to it. And, you know, one of those things is like if you start a social community or an online patient network and there's nobody already having a conversation, the first patient is not going to go, oh, I'll just start conversing. You need to actually create it and you need to create content in it. You need to show that it has actually a lot of resources and kind of give that community a sense of how it would be or else what's going to happen is people go to it once and just never come back to it. So it's kind of this, you know, chicken or the egg scenario. And that's the same argument with, with apps, right? You develop your own thing. The hardest part is not developing the community or the app or whatever the scenario is. It's driving adoption of it. You know, if a community was built in the woods, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how to finish that metaphor, but yes, I understand yeah, would, what you're saying. <laughs> would, uh, would someone find it? You know, so, right, um, exactly. One of the things that I've run across a couple of times, too, and this is, this is a real struggle for hospitals, is um, not knowing the community exists. If someone in the general public sets up a Facebook group, sorry to always keep going back to Facebook, sets up a Facebook group, Uh, around a particular topic. Let's pick the NICU. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they set up a a group for moms who've had kids in the NICU. Well, it's their right. They can do that. I mean, there's nothing stopping them, and and there's really no reason uh, that that's not a good idea. The the weird kind of gray line here is like you get people within your organization who maybe set up that same group. So they're the administrator of this Facebook group, And uh, if you navigate over to their Facebook page, it says that they work at your organization. Now, what's going to happen is people joining that group want to know who this person is that's administering the group. And it says they work at your organization. But this isn't an organization-sponsored community. Because here it is. This is a great idea. And it absolutely has the right person administering the group. But... Now your name's on something you didn't realize existed. And are all the uh, checks and balances in place? That in and of itself is also a 
big, big concern. We talked a few episodes ago about me working in a hospital system that had multiple hospitals across a larger area. Uh, routinely, we would find a Facebook group that was started by a, a particular mm-hmm. community that maybe, you know, in central central Long Island, but it had our hospital brand name to it. And so subsequently, people that were in, not in that service area were participating in that conversation. And there was no connectivity across the enterprise, right? Or, you know, you mentioned before, right, if marketing starts it, well, marketing may start it for one purpose to maybe promote babies that are being born at their particular hospital or whatever it may be, but it may evolve into being more of a clinically focused or a patient support group. And so subsequently, you have to follow the community itself and the guidelines around the community to ensure that it's it's healthy. But then all of a sudden, now you have this, uh uh-oh, we now need to pull in the nurse navigators or we need to pull in the OBGYNs or whoever it may be to kind of help out with this conversation. And that's something they never themselves signed up for to begin with. The hardest part's already happened. Another example I've got is um, I ran across a weight loss support group, bariatric support group, in a geographic region, and it was kind of labeled that way. didn't have the hospital name on it or anything. It was just kind of a geographic region support group. The administrator of it ran that program at a local hospital, and it was like, hey, you know, you need to disclose you do that. Well, I'm not running this group as the person that runs that program. I'm running it as someone who's had bariatric surgery. Yeah, no, I get it. But like, that's not how this is going to come across. (laughs) Right. You know what I'm saying? Because there's (laughs) other hospitals in this market. They're going to look at this and think you're trying to refer patients to your physicians, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever it may be. So there's just different scenarios there that... Some people, well-meaning and are doing a great job, just need to understand like, hey, man, there's there's you know, there's only, there's certain ways that this has to happen based on the role that you play in our organization. There's just some things there that, you know, you need to make sure you've got your ducks in a row and how you're going to implement and execute these groups. And then when things come up then it becomes a pretty easy conversation. Because again, you know, we always talk about the hardest part is not building the website, it's the content. The hardest part here is not creating the real estate, uh, the group. It's getting people to participate. And ultimately, especially from a clinical perspective, getting people to, to participate on a regular basis. And so you already have those boxes checked using to make sure that uh, the other pieces are there so um, everybody understands that you're doing it for the right reason and it really you know can continue to be a resource for a long period of time when you look at any other industry they look at this and say you already have a community that's talking about a particular product or service whatever it might be that's the hardest part this is a good problem to have but when it comes to us in the healthcare and health, you know, the health system, just because we're regulated and we're, these are new tools and physicians are maybe not used to this or nurses or what have you, and they look at this as, you know, an addition to their everyday job, that it just becomes more of a, of a challenge. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? 
That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Reed, I have to ask you something. We've talked about this a couple episodes ago about the the electronic medical record or the EHR, the EAM, mm-hmm. EMR, EHR system. You know, do you think that that has a role in helping to develop online patient communities? Or let me phrase it a little bit clearer: Do you think that a patient portal is a good place to start to develop a patient community? Hmm. I think it could be. I mean, again, that may help drive adoption of a patient portal if there is uh, stuff there other than you know paying your bill. You know, not that there's not other good resources there and things like that, but that may keep people coming back to the MR on a regular basis. That may ultimately be a great place to do that. I think you know, obviously, the consolidation of places people go and participate online is probably always good. I still, I still think, based on what we've talked about to this point, getting the people, you're going to have to put it somewhere that people have to go, or they already are. That's something that underscores the challenge of EHRs and EMRs in general. They're, they're very much task-based. You can click a box to you know, make an appointment, maybe, to get your lab scores, etc. They haven't really been designed initially as a place for to commune online groups of people talking about their care. As we look at the impact and the influence of social networks, etc., coming into the space, I think that that might be a potential where these these tools may evolve to. But right now, I can't imagine going there to do that. You know, mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe four or five years from now, maybe that there'll be something out there that would be useful for me to do that. What I do know, though, this is very important. Having these online user groups, these patient groups is an important part of how people that are using the internet are, you know, the, the value that people find using the internet nowadays. So much so that Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, is really looking to nudge you to use some of these meaningful online groups. I mean, that's a big, big thing that he wants to do. He recently had a couple of conferences, and we'll link to an article in our show notes about this. He's basically drawing a line in the sand and saying that's what Facebook is evolving to. In the future, we want to create Facebook to be online community groups around a variety of topics, healthcare being a big one of these. When we talk about that, and we've talked about Facebook before, we've talked about Google and Apple and Amazon and all of these big tech companies coming into this space. From my Mm -hmm. perspective, I see Facebook as the logical extension for where it's growing is going to really capture a big part of this market. Yeah, I think so. You know, they early on obviously built out groups as an option when you're creating things in Facebook. So you can create a group. Whether that was uh, super purposeful or it kind of accidentally became a big deal, I think that creates a medium in which, uh, again, everybody's already using Facebook and everybody's already logging into Facebook a whole bunch every day. And so this is another stickiness factor that they have where you know now you've got additional reasons other than just logging in to see a few things and maybe post something funny or comment on something or see some news items. Now you've got kind of this standing group or groups that are everything from 
you know, maybe your kids' PTO organization to something at church to something health related. I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, people obviously want to connect with other people like them. Everything that they're building Facebook to be is designed to pull people together around particular topics, the tracking of people's statuses and trying to determine their moods and, and shifting their moods to be more happy, as we talked about before. All of these things, the algorithms, they're mm-hmm. leading to the fact that these meaningful groups are going to be a significant part of the future state of what Facebook will be. And I would say subsequently, that's going to have a disruptive impact on our space. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. Touchpoint, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! All right, we are back. Touch point, touch counterpoint. Uh, today, talking about the role of online patient communities and what those mean, struggles for hospitals, etc. And so today, Chris and I are going to argue a little bit about should you use Facebook to create said groups or communities, or should you find a solution to uh, build and own your own? Well, I think you should build your own for the main reason what we talked about before is that we really can't control what Facebook is doing. Even though Facebook is moving uh, very aggressively into the space, I think we don't have any control. We don't know how it can align with the way we're going to support our patients through this tool. If we're going to do this right, we need to bring our own requirements to the table and start building it on our own. I don't know. I, you know, again, based on what we talked about, I think uh, for do you have any level of success for the vast majority? Now, I'm taking out the top 10% that because of their brand, they can do anything and people will adopt it. You, you have a really hard time as a regional acute care hospital getting people or driving adoption. We always talked about the uh, the lack of time, the lack of resources that we have. You know, go where the people are. You, you've got to use Facebook. You don't have a choice. Maybe it feels like you don't have a choice, but quite honestly, you could create your own online community. Maybe it is an extension of your website where people are coming to anyway, maybe to access their patient portal and give them a link into that so they could start communicating with one another. You have a pocket of people that are interested, those people that are seeking out care from your, from your organization. It would be very easy for you to extend that and then maybe offer that to patients as they're you know coming through. Let's say they had a baby. You could say, you know, I'd love for you to join our community online. It'd be really easy. Uh, I mean, really easy, but it's additional steps. People probably aren't going to take it. Maybe maybe people with super specialized, you know, maybe will. But I still think using something like Facebook, Facebook is probably the best because it has the tools built in to create these types of communities. It is by far your better use case. And, I, you know, I just, I don't know how you do it otherwise. Because there's going to be cost involved. Facebook is free. 
Uh, there's going to be additional time involved, which will be the same time used in Facebook. It just, you know, people are already on Facebook. You don't have to drive adoption, which would cost even more money. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about money, right, I think the, the money is well spent investing in a tool or a solution that will align closer to your own care. If, again, putting it on Facebook, many hospitals block Facebook right now. How would you, if you're a nurse that's in charge of maybe moderating this group, have access to that? If you're blocked, you don't even have it at your home, com- you know, your work computer. So I think that it, it makes it so much easier and costs less time and, and has a, a dramatic impact on the efficiency of their daily workflow to build it on your own through a blog or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a fair point on the blocking of Facebook because that still is an issue that, that certain sites, uh, platforms, whatever, are blocked. But if someone has an official role that they're, they're moderating communities, it's easy enough to work with ITNS and get them access. And or they all have smartphones anyway. You know, it doesn't really matter. They can still do it. And you don't have to work on... You know, the integration, the, the administrator, the moderator is already there on Facebook. Very easy for them to jump in two or three minutes here and there, you know, and be involved versus having to learn a new platform. Up until the point when Facebook changes their algorithms and suddenly you won't have that easy access. Suddenly you have to be authenticated a certain way. Or maybe one of your patients posts something and then uh, Facebook looks at it and says, that doesn't mean our community guidelines and shuts down your group. You have no control. I don't think that's going to be the case. And if it is, you just adjust. I mean, I I think, yes, Facebook will ultimately change something. Uh, But there's workarounds. And if it's valuable enough, people will continue to use it. And if not, then you, you, you call an audible at that point in time. I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you make an important community and make it important to your patients, having them go now to Facebook as opposed to your website, that could have an impact on SEO. That could, you know, make it very hard for them to actually find that community. And what if that patient doesn't want to be part of Facebook? What if they say they're not a Facebook person? Well, then they can come to the in-person support groups. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got a, you got a fair point there, Reed. Again, we're the part of this exercise is to show the extreme opposites of the argument, and I think that we we once again the the real answer comes somewhat in the middle. It, it always is somewhere in the middle, and a lot of it's going to be, I guess, influenced by where you are, the demographics that you're working with, the, the specific type of support community uh, or patient community that you're wanting to set up. Um, you know, if you're setting up something for first-time mothers, you know, that's going to be very different than maybe joint replacement, for example. When you think about that, it's it's really the type of support group that you're creating. And what I mean by that is, is that some of these, like the maternity page, that might be something that's good for, for Facebook. If you're going to be launching into something that's a little bit more clinically moderated, that has sensitive information, that may be one where you consider developing one that's related, you know, or that you can monitor that's on a secure, HIPAA secure web portal. Welcome back to our Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today's podcast, as you know, is about online patient communities. And I am happy to have back Ed Bennett uh, on our podcast to talk a little bit about online patient communities. Ed, welcome back. Well, thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Third time on the podcast. That's right. Yeah, yeah, because we we had uh, the second time was the live podcast from the uh, strategy conference. That's right. Cool. When we keep this up, you're going to get a smoking jacket. Oh, I'd like that. (laughs) 
So, Ed, a lot of people know you, but one of the things that they may or may not know, well, they would know if they went to the forum and they saw your your, conf- your session, is that you've been spending a lot of time with online patient communities. Well, there's a, a couple of factors that uh, drew me to this. I've always been looking at tools and innovative ways that hospitals can use web and digital technology to improve the patient experience. I think that the online patient communities is something that is starting to slowly take off. I track the number of hospitals that sponsor these communities on my blog. I think I'm up to about 15 or 18 so far. Uh, so it's, it's a slow start, but I believe that this is going to be one of the most effective ways that a hospital can continue the relationship with their patients, provide uh, the type of environment that patients are seeking for support, and while also overseeing it and making sure that the uh, the information that's being provided is is accurate, et cetera. Uh, it's a complex problem, and it's t- it requires some uh, some um, resources from the hospital on a regular basis to do this. Uh, but I believe that hospitals will eventually see that that effort is worth it and will pay back uh, in multiples uh, with improved patient outcomes and uh, a better patient, uh, again, a better patient experience. I remember eight, nine years ago, working at my first hospital, we would create closed Facebook groups as a mm-hmm. way for, for patients to talk or people that are recovering from you know, a particular procedure. When you're talking about online patient communities now, can you put some, uh, maybe a definition around that? So. Well, the, it includes the type of communities that you're talking about, uh, closed groups on Facebook, open groups on Facebook, hospitals partnering with places like Care Hubs, which provides a platform for this type of thing. Um, but the definition basically is it's a space for uh, patients to communicate with each other and to do the, the type of patient support that's been going on for over 20 years. But the difference is that it's an officially sanctioned and sponsored group by a hospital. And that's that's the significant difference. So that if you go into one of these groups, you'll see the name of the hospital, maybe the, the logo of the hospital, and but most importantly, the hospital has committed resources to keep the group going, to answer questions, to basically oversee that uh, the patients are getting the information they need and the support they need from each other. All that matters is that the hospital is stepping up and saying, we support this, we're managing this, and it gives their, their stamp of approval. What type of resources do you see the hospitals are, 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 are using to, you know, to be part of this community? Are, are these nurses, are they doctors? In general, what I'm seeing uh, is folks like nurse practitioners, um, other medical staff who have been involved for years and years with traditional face-to-face support groups you know, the kind where you show up every month or every quarter at the hospital, you go into a conference room, you have some coffee and donuts, and all the patients sit around and, and talk and share their stories. Uh, those folks are the ones who are usually saying, let's move this into a digital realm so that the patients can talk to each other anytime they want, not just once every three months, and we'll continue that type of support activity in that environment. And I can imagine that that takes a little bit of resources on the hospital side to have someone that's sort of that monitor, that community manager. Are you seeing some pushback or some challenges with that? What I'm seeing is pushback from folks who are, I believe, are one, severely overestimating how much time they're going to need. 
and two, underestimating the value of it. I've talked with support group managers, and once you get the group up and running, and you get to know the folks who are uh, talking about uh, the, the issue of the day, then the monitoring of that is something that can be done in a, in a very short period of time. The person I worked with most closely was a woman, a nurse practitioner named Janet Griptrover. Uh, we set up a liver transplant support group uh, for her around 2011, 2012. It's set up, it's got 300 members, it's a closed group. Uh, these are all people who have had liver transplants at, at her hospital, the University of Maryland. And the amount of time that she spends, uh, she says, is usually like maybe two hours a week total. She's got it set up so that when uh, something gets posted, she gets an email uh, via Facebook. She can, she can quickly scan the conversations, uh, step in when needed. But that uh, once it's up and running and you get to know the folks, then uh, it's not as much time as, uh, as you might think. Now, the other big thing here is that in her experience, you know, remember, she's, these, are, these are patients who have a chronic condition. They had a liver transplant. They're going to be on medicine the rest of their lives. Uh, they need regular monitoring and, and check-ins with, um, with their, their care staff. What she says she's found is that the patients that are using and participating in these groups come in for their regular checkup, maybe it's every three months, every six months, and they already know everything they need to know because it's been discussed uh, on the Facebook group. She says, my time is used so much better because I can drill into their specific issues and we already have a, um, a basis of information uh, to, to move forward on. Uh, she says, I spend less time I'm getting much better results from those those encounters, those face-to-face encounters. Mm -hmm. And uh, in her opinion, this is something that has greatly improved the care she can give her patients. What do you see as generally the conversations that, that are being had on these online patient communities? There's an awful lot of, I'm not feeling too well, I'm down, I'm depressed, uh, and that kind of you know support that comes from their fellow group members. But there's also a lot of conversation about the medicines that they're on and the side effects of it. And then other group members will say, yes, I had that same side effect uh, and here's what I, uh, what I did. Of course, that's the kind of thing that's monitored, but uh, these folks are, are, are in the midst of their, of their patient journey and they're sharing the same type of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that, that dif is different is that when news stories break uh, about uh, the disease or, or the, the condition uh, and there's a flurry of conversation about you know, the latest thing that was published in the, Wall Street, or the New York Times or the Washington Post about XYZ condition or XYZ treatment, the healthcare professional who's, who's running the group can step in and say, okay, we saw that news story too, uh, here's what... Uh, uh, you need to know about what's behind that story. Uh, many times the group manager will reach out to the physicians and say, can you give us some insight on whether folks should be concerned about this or you know, give them, give them a foundation to understand uh, the, the context of what this means for them. It's a very efficient way to get accurate information out to all those group members at the same time to keep something from spinning out of control when it's based on information that's incomplete. And to reassure the, the patients that a medical professional is, is keeping track and advising them 
uh, that's a lot. That's a very positive kind of uh, mental, psychological thing, and uh, that's the role and that's the benefit that hospitals get out of it. But one thing that that is curious to me, and I'm wondering, and I'm sure this has come up in your work, uh, some of the stuff you're talking about might be related to that patient health record. Uh, I'm going to mention the vendor I'm working with. The vendor is called Curatio, and they mm-hmm. have a product. Uh, a mobile app that, in my mind, is the best platform out there for these types of communities. And they are working with hospitals to uh, integrate the EMR into data that is is provided to a member of that community. Uh, and then feeding information from that back into the um, EMR. Of course, this is all done with securely. It's all done with the patient's approval. You know, it's very—it's fairly easy to set up a, a a group. Lots of tools out there to set up a forum, and to just start—you know—a group of people talking to each other. It is a much more difficult thing to build the technology underneath that, to do it in a secure and HIPAA-compliant way, to tie what's going on in that in that community back to the individual medical records. And this vendor, uh, Curatio, is is doing that, et cetera. Are you seeing that these online patient communities are being built around particular condition states or disease states in general? Definitely, uh, because uh, that's that's the shared experience. Uh, so a person has had a liver transplant has a very different set of issues and concerns uh, than someone who, say, is diabetic or has Crohn's or or, or some other type of condition. And the value, of course, of the group is that you're you're everybody in group has the same shared uh, background and experience. What hospitals are doing are building uh, these communities and generally they, uh, well, in all cases, they are tied to particular conditions. Way back when, a lot of organizations were looking at patients like me as a good use case for something like this. But that was on a national level, right? right. Where you're, you're, right. On, you're talking to people across the, not even national, international, mm-hmm. right? Across yeah. the whole world. How do, you, how do you see that these larger organizations mm-hmm. work in, in play with these sort of micro or, uh, or smaller online patient communities? In general, the uh, hospitals that are doing this are focusing on their own patients. The interactions that happen uh, when the patient is seen in person by the healthcare staff will at some point usually include the information that we have a support group for folks that have your condition. Uh, It's a closed group. It's only for folks that we know in person, that we've treated in person, and we invite you to join that. Now, those groups can range from completely closed and secret Mm -hmm. to closed but open so that you can see what everyone's saying but if you want to join you need to be you know you need to apply and then it'll be approved by the group moderator uh, so the hospital gains much greater visibility they uh, folks in the public can see how they're managing and supporting the the, the people in the group that is a really big positive thing for the marketing of what the hospital's doing. If you have a choice between a, hosp- a place that will give you good treatment, but then your follow-up is the traditional you know, six-month checkup versus the, another place that will give you the same good treatment, but you can see that they're supporting you via this group on an ongoing basis, I think that's a very positive thing for the hospital brand. And then there are some hospitals that uh, I've seen where they are completely open. I mean, you still have to, you know, request to join, 
but since some of them that I tested, uh, they, you know, they let me join a maternity group. So, you know, so so (laughs) not, not a lot of, um, of uh, scrutiny there, but, uh, they're completely open and, uh, you can join and, uh, and be part of it without any, any sort of restrictions, but that's the exception. I think that no matter what level of openness you have in a community, uh, all the hospitals need to be, of course, you know, aware and following, uh, proper rules on patient privacy, et cetera. But remember, the HIPAA rules and the patient privacy rules are all about what does a hospital say about their patient. It's not what a patient is saying about their condition. And that's what the conversation is that's going on in these groups. Uh, So when I see a a posting where someone is talking about a, uh, say, uh, a drug interaction or a side effect, the response from the healthcare professional running the group is not, "Hey Ed, I looked up your medical record and you, you know, you have this and you did that and, uh, you know, why aren't you taking this other medicine that will help?" They're not doing that. They're saying, "We're aware that some patients have this kind of interaction. Uh, here's what uh, we generally recommend uh, patients think about, and I definitely want you, uh, the person who made the complaint, to give me a call." and let's schedule an appointment for you to come in or a phone call where we can privately discuss what the next steps are. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you're, you're starting to collect a list. Can you give out the URL and talk a little bit more about that? If you go to um, tools.ebennett.org, uh, that's where I'm keeping my different lists. Okay. And then you'll, you'll see that there's two lists, the online patient support groups list and then the physician transparency list. And from there you can see the hospitals that are doing it, the uh, link will take you, there's a link of the name of the hospital that takes you to their main website, mm-hmm. then there's a link that says what kind of group it is and can take you to that group. Now some of the groups are closed, but many of them are open and uh, you can go in there and, and get a real sense of, of how the community looks and, and, and what kind of things are happening there. That's awesome, Ed. Thank you so much. Ed, how do they find a, find more about you at the same website? Yeah, go to the same website. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> so yeah. uh, uh, I'm at ebennett.org. org is my main blog, which is, as always, going through a major revision and uh, hope to have a <laughs> new, a better blog up in, in a few months. Uh, and then they can. there's my contact information there. Well, thank you again, Ed, for being part of this my podcast pleasure. today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. With that music, we now know we're getting to the end of the podcast. Reed, this was a good one where we talked about online patient communities and had a good interview with Ed Bennett. Thank you for that interview, Ed. Reed, this is typically the part where we talk about what's coming up next and also make some recommendations. Yeah, tell everybody what uh, what's coming down the pike. Well, I got two things for me that are coming down the pike in the next uh, couple of weeks. Of course, there's Content Marketing World. We talked about this. I'll be in Cleveland on September 9th moderating a panel session. And on that panel session, there are a couple people that we know that have been on this podcast before. Brian Gresh from the Cleveland Clinic, as well as Rob Birdfield from Innova. But then also two others, Aaron Watkins from Johns Hopkins and Matt Schwabel from Duke Medicine. We're going to be talking about impacts of digital into the content marketing space. So it'll be a good panel. I'm going to try to bring on microphone reads, so maybe we can capture some of that conversation and, or even you know, get some excerpts of that that we can post on our podcast later. I'm also doing a webinar with the advisory board on September 14th. 
It's called Planning and Marketing, Getting on the Same Page. And it really is a discussion about how strategic planning and marketing could get together and start working in complementary manners in hospitals and health systems. We know that doesn't always happen. And so these are we're going to share some good tips and actually do a use case of how one organization has been doing it and getting some good results. We got also the Healthcare Internet Conference, right? That's in October. Yeah, that's right. People have to sign up for that. They can go to hcic.net. But we'll be down in, in your neck of the woods, Reed. Austin, Texas. Yes. October 23rd through the 25th, we'll be uh, recording Touchpoint in front of a live audience on that Tuesday afternoon. So more to come on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you haven't, should be uh, and looks to be, you can check out the uh, schedule and you know who the speakers are going to be and some of that stuff on their website as well. But it looks to be a great conference and cool venue at the JW Marriott here in Austin. We invite you guys to every, everyone listening in that's going to be there, come sit in on our podcast recording and maybe even we'll get to get your voice in and when the audience questions all right reed so now recommendations what do you have i am recommending saddle soap that's right uh, i like the uh, Phoebings brand and uh, we'll have a link to this but everybody needs a small can uh, you can even get it in three and a half ounce of saddle soaps get it for shoes wallets anything smooth uh, it works really well for Keeps your leather from getting all uh, cracked and brittle and things like that. You know, you can go to some of the other things like Neat's Foot Oil, but this is a great place to start. Cleans it, keeps it uh, looking good. And I assume you can also use it on a saddle if you need to. Yes, if you have a saddle, obviously you could use the said saddle soap. (laughs) That's awesome. Great, great recommendation. So, Reed, I'm going to recommend an app. Do you like to take pictures on your camera? Sure. Do you also post them to Instagram? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool, cool. I do that too. And, you know, I do like the Instagram filters. They're pretty good. But about a year ago, I was turned on to another app that's actually free that you can download in the App Store called Visco. Have you ever heard of Visco before? Mm-mm. It's actually a really great photography app that's used by people that are very much photographers or creative artists that has very high level type of um, filters and the ability to actually adjust your photos very well. So what's cool about it is, is whenever you take a photo, you can actually open up in the Visco app. You can mm-hmm. apply your advanced filters. You can do a variety of different things to your, your picture. It's just a very versatile tool. And you can do two things cool. with it. The first thing is you can turn around and then post it out to Instagram, which is what I do quite often for those of you following me on Instagram. The other thing is, is Visco has a whole online community of other photographers. So you could, through the use of hashtags, post it to this online community. And now people in this Visco feed can start to see your photographs. And it's a great way to find other great photographers and, and kind of connect with other uh, other artists that are out there in the community. And Visco. Very cool. Yeah. Great recommendation. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 30. And for those listening, uh, please subscribe to iTunes, rate and review while you're there. It would be super helpful. Let others find it. Uh, recommend it to a friend, family member, coworker, boss, employee, whatever it may be. He is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. And we will see you next week.